Well, hello everyone. We have a rather firm back end tonight that some of you might be aware of. So I'm going to try to uh, move at flank speed. There's a lot of information I could still teach on this matter of the voice of God, but I want to slightly shift gears um, at this moment and talk about a dimension of the voice of God, which is when we vocalize the voice of God because something, as it were, note that I say, as it were, is being squeezed out of us. Or you could say hurled out of us, if you like that language better. And that something is related directly to the manifest, overt power of God. Now, this is a really important concept that many people aren't teaching on. Uh, they may not even understand this concept very well. But I was talking with Kirk about this yesterday morning as we went on our walk and made his ankle worse. Um, that's an inside joke. He climbed a fence and hurt his ankle. Instead of taking him home, we kept walking. Um, but anyway, because I'm trying to move quickly through this, I want to just make this point. And, and I, I think this may be important for some to really grab hold of. There's a lot of teaching out there right now that you can find it pretty quickly if you are tied to the Internet in any way. It may be that you pick it up off YouTube, Facebook, I don't know, but you can find it. And this teaching is fundamentally misguided. It's, there's something wrong with it. And the reason it's wrong is there's an ancient heresy, ancient, 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 was condemned by none other than Paul the Apostle, particularly in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, but it took on its own life after the death of the first century apostles, and it was something with which the church had to contend for about a minimum of 200 years after the first century. And it almost overran the church. It almost became the dominant paradigm for Christianity because the teachers who were teaching it were very compelling and um, it, it, you know, in some ways appeals to certain aspects of the human soul. And in particular, it appeals to the power of the mind, and that heresy is called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. You might have heard of geonosis in a little movie series somewhere. But gnosis means knowledge. And it doesn't, there's two kinds of knowledge in the Bible. There's gnosis, which is mind knowledge, and there's epignosis, which is knowledge beyond knowing. And the Gnostics essentially uh, brought a teaching, and I'm, I'm highly distilling here, but the Gnostics brought a teaching that said, if you just understand enough, you will find your way to perfection in the Christian life. And with that, Christianity began to take on dimensions of you just have to stuff your head full of facts. But it wasn't just facts. Some of it was kind of esoteric knowledge and hidden truth. And the more of this knowledge you could achieve, well, the better it got. But Paul says in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, why am I even talking about this? It's ancient history. So what do we care about what happened a long time ago? Well, this teaching that's going around, and it's pretty prominent. I have had in, in the last week, I've had five conversations with five different church leaders about this very thing, and it generally manifests itself through um, language like this. It was all done at the cross. Now, on the one hand, it was all done at the cross. Jesus died, paid the full price, and there is no further price to be paid. It was all done at the cross. But what do you do as you move beyond the point of justification, i.e., that point at which you become born again, and you start moving into the fullness of the Christian life? Traditionally, this is called sanctification, but with it comes the understanding, if it was all done at the cross, then you are fully and completely done at the moment that you are converted. And if you aren't fully and completely done, it's because you just don't yet understand who you really are in Christ. You need more knowledge. You need more gnosis. And with it comes a teaching as well of sinless perfection. Now, most people wouldn't dare to say I'm perfect, but what, what I have heard some of these teachers say um, is you can't sin anymore once you are born again. Uh, if you believe that, I don't know what you do with passages like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our if we say we have no sin, let's back up to verse 7. If we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from every sin. So one of the things that's going on with this new Gnostic paradigm that's emerging is a decline in power. Paul said this, my message and my preaching came not with wise words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration. That means it's visible. It's tangible. There is something concrete about it. A demonstration of the spirit and of power in order that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but rather upon the power of God. 1 Corinthians steps 2, uh, 4, and 5 and then dropping down to 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words and talk. It does not consist in knowledge either. It consists in power, 1 Corinthians 4.20. Now that's a pretty bright line division between gnosis and knowledge and coming to a higher understanding of who you are in Christ. And if you just knew, you would be fine versus Paul's paradigm of overt manifest spiritual power. Now, it's interesting that much of this teaching that the Gnostics brought in the early centuries, it was rooted in Greek thinking. Where's Paul rooted? Hebrew thinking. He's a rabbi, and he's teaching out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so with that, I want to just draw our little mini-conference to a close in the next 25 minutes or so. I want to I draw this conference to a close with a quick skim through of some passages where the overt manifest power of God is in evidence in the Bible, and we see with that the release of, of prophecy and the voice of God, and you note that it is not coming out of head knowledge. In fact, before I even take you to those passages, I'll remind you that Jeremiah the prophet 
in speaking of the other prophets of his day, famously said that the other prophets of his day prophesied out of their own vain imaginations. What, where does the imagination reside? In the mind. So Jeremiah is basically saying it would be too strong possibly, maybe, to say they're making it up, maybe. But in any case, whatever they're saying is originating out of here rather than out of the spirit. Because when we talk about power in the sense that I'm using it, we are talking about overt, manifest power that is released when the Holy Spirit moves upon a people. Is that distinction clear now? So let's look at some scriptures quickly. Numbers chapter 11, and I know the lights aren't great, so you may struggle to keep up with it because of the lighting. But anyhow, here we are. Numbers 11, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So there's going to be a distribution of responsibility. Moses is clearly called a prophet. So the spirit that's upon him, if nothing else, it may be many things that's going, that are going on here, but one that is quite assured is the spirit of prophecy that Moses carries is going to be put upon these 70 men. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Why? Well, because this is Old Covenant. And the spirit really was given to prophets and kings. He was also there for anointing priests, but principally prophets and kings. And we'll look at a few passages that just define that in a moment. So these men are neither. They're, they're part of the rulership or the leadership of the nation, but, but they're neither prophets nor kings. So what is interesting, though, is when the spirit came on them, they prophesied. Now, that's very, very significant, and I'll tell you why. Because I travel a lot, and in most churches I go to, even the so-called renewed churches, the really anointed churches, the river stream churches, even a lot of vineyard churches, there isn't much prophesying going on. Now, there is a lot of forms of prophecy. There's calling out prophecy, more or less what I was doing last night. But there's also the prophesying to the room where the spirit is moving and he speaks through whichever vessel he speaks through in order that the word of the Lord would come to the people of God. I get it. It's scary because you think, well, people are going to think I'm weird or they're going to think I'm goofy or they're going to think I'm making it up. Maybe I think I'm making it up. But the fact of the matter is, the first sign of being filled with the Spirit that we have in the Bible is this one, that people are filled with the Spirit and therefore they prophesy. So if you are filled with the Spirit, prophecy ought to be part of your normal Christian existence. So the Spirit comes on them, 
and these men prophesy. Verse 26, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other named Medad, or Medad if you say it properly, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. I always make this comment just because every time I read it, I'm just sort of stunned. You got 70 men that get picked. I don't know what the population of the people of Israel is, but it says 600,000 had gone out on foot when they marched out of Egypt. Those were the men. Assume a comparable number of women. How many children were there? I don't know, but generally families were big. So four kids per family? Six? Eight? I don't know. Pick whatever number you want. I'll pick four. So you got 1.2 million adults, and you probably have at least 2.4 million kids. So all up, you're getting close to 5 million people, and you're one of the 70 that gets picked. And I don't know what happened to Eldad and Medad that day. I hope they had diarrhea or something. Because they better have had a really good reason not to have been out at that tent for that meeting, because they're, they're two guys that got picked, and they didn't make it. That's crazy, isn't it? And yet, because they'd been designated, it says they'd not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldan and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, and Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses clearly has the idea that this is meant to be widely distributed, even if not yet. It will come later. And Moses, where did he get this idea? I'm thinking he got this idea up on the mountain while he's communing with God. So there is a something that comes with this. This is not just head knowledge. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just wanting it to be. There's something substantive about it. And when you get around prophecy, when it's released like this, it, there's, a, there's a kind of a flow to it, and it, well, it hits like a truck bomb, excuse the expression. Let's look at another passage out of the Scripture. Let's go to 1 Samuel. I mentioned that the giving of the Spirit is for primarily prophets and kings. So in 1 Samuel 10, the Lord has said to Samuel that Saul is the one who is going to be the king of Israel. And the Lord, it says, before Saul comes, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel about this time tomorrow, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel and he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. All right, so the story goes on. Saul arrives, and as they spend the day together, now it's time to leave the next morning. And so they go through the city gates, and Samuel tells the servant of Saul, go on ahead. I want to talk to, the, talk to your master privately for a minute. First Samuel 10.1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then he gives him a, a prophetic word that, it depends on how you group this stuff, but it, there may be as many as 45 words of knowledge in this particular prophetic word about where Saul is going to go, who he's going to meet, under what conditions, how many people he will meet, what they will be carrying, the kinds of instruments they will have. It goes on and on. 
I'm not reading it all only because I'm playing Beat the Clock, and this is one of the ways I can compress time. But you might want to read it. Anyway, and then he says this, verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord, now I'm reading in ESV, will rush upon you. Most of your Bibles will say, will come upon you in power. That's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. That's tangibility. This is not just wishful thinking or some sort of religious sentiment where you feel inspired. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, I'll say, in power. And you will prophesy. And you will be changed into a new man. Now when these signs meet, you do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then it goes on, verse 9, when he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him in power, and he prophesied among them. And so people said, what has come over the son of Kish? Is he also among the prophets? Now what this is describing is a phenomenon called the spirit of prophecy. And when the spirit of prophecy comes on people, there is often a very powerful and dramatic manifestation. Sometimes people will literally be knocked to the ground. Sometimes their lips will vibrate. Sometimes they'll feel energy in their tongue or their throat. Sometimes they'll feel power coursing through their body. But they come under the influence of the spirit of God. And this is one of those places where it happens. Going forward a couple chapters to 1 Samuel 16, we see now that Saul has made a mistake, and so the Lord's about to anoint his successor. We know him as David. And the Lord sends Samuel yet again to anoint David in order that he would become king. And so they go to have this sacrifice, and Jesse brings in his seven sons, but he doesn't bring David in. David's the youngest, he's number eight, he's out in the fields, Jesse leaves him behind. But as each of the sons is coming before Samuel, Samuel's going, well, he looks pretty good, and the Lord goes, not him. Well, how about him? He looks pretty good. No, no, not him. Well, what about him? No, not him either. Well, by the time they get to seven, he's like, none of these is the one the Lord has picked. Do you have any other sons? Well, he got the little one out in the field, but, you know, he's just a boy. So he goes, bring him, we won't begin the feast until he comes. And so... He sent and brought him in. Now David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, same thing he'd done with Saul, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, came upon him in power from that day forward. Now what does this mean? Again, this is not sentimentality. But if you haven't seen this, you aren't familiar with it, you may not know what this is. This is a kind of impartation, but it's a particular kind of impartation because David will go on and become a prophet as well. 1 Samuel 19, Saul begins to hunt David, and David has to flee. And it says, 1 Samuel 19, verse 18, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him and he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. Now Naoth was where Samuel had his prophetic training school. There were groups of prophets there under his tutelage who were learning to prophesy by the word of the Lord. They obviously had to be under the influence of the Spirit of God to prophesy properly, but there are certain things that you learn about delivering a word. Some of those we were discussing over the last couple of sessions. 
there's, as I say, more that we could talk about, but maybe next time I come, we'll just keep going with that. But anyway, so here we are in Naoth, and in verse 19, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off all his clothes. And he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now I'm not saying you have to take off your clothes. But it's worth noting that it says he lay a day and a night. Saul is in some sort of prophetic ecstasy or a trance of some kind. And he's literally knocked out. I mean, he's on the ground. He's conscious, but he's not standing up. And this is because the Spirit overwhelmed him. And I think Naoth was one of those places where there was such a prophetic anointing. There was such a spirit of prophecy there. After all, Samuel is training schools of the prophets that it's like when these soldiers came three different times and ultimately Saul himself comes, they step inside of some kind of a bubble or a cone or a zone and it overwhelms each of them such that they begin to prophesy even though they are filled with murderous intent. Well, the spirit of prophecy is seen elsewhere in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel being one of the greatest visionary prophets of the Old Testament. It says in Ezekiel 8, 1, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Now watch that language. It's really important. The hand of the Lord fell upon me there. This is more than just the word of the Lord came to me. He says elsewhere the word of the Lord came to me. This is some sort of an overwhelming. And if you think of, you know, putting your hand on someone, just to illustrate, I'll pick on you, right? The hand of the Lord comes upon you. The hand of the Lord, and it's not just touching you, fell upon me. Now, when the hand of the Lord falls upon someone, there's kind of a kind of an effect to it because he's God. And so the hand of the Lord fell upon me, and then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, so his legs looked like flames, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. This is an idol that was placed in the temple. Now Ezekiel's living in exile in Babylon. And this being, we don't, um, could have been a pre-incarnate Jesus, could have been an angel, it's not really clear. But the legs are on fire and the top is gleaming and shining. 
But note that this happens, why? When he's in an encounter in which the hand of the Lord falls upon him. That's the language I want you to track. All right, Ezekiel 37, he has another ex uh, experience like this. Ezekiel 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones, and he led me around and so forth, showed me the bones, and he said, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And then he said, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you. How did that happen? Well, because the hand of the Lord was upon him. How did the hand of the Lord come to Ezekiel when it came to him? It fell upon him. Okay, let's keep going. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to make reference to it. But in Joel chapter 2, there is this passage, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And the only reason I'm not going there is because it's already 7 o'clock and I'm managing the time. That's the only reason I'm not turning to it. But Joel talks about how God will pour out his spirit in the last days. And as a result of his spirit being poured out, all men and women who are his will prophesy. This isn't available to everybody. It's available to those who are believers. So Joel prophesied the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost comes. There's my warning, see, right there. In Acts 2, Peter stands up with the eleven, he lifts his voice, and he says to all of the people who are paying attention to what's happened on Pentecost, he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. Now, why would they think they are drunk? What do drunk people do? Fall down? Stagger? <laughs> right? They do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. They are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is not just kind of Yes, we got filled with the Spirit today. It was really amazing. Wow. So these guys are, as we say, drunk in the Spirit. And then Peter quotes the very passage I was just referencing from Joel. That's why I didn't read it from Joel, because Peter's quoting it here. But I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. On my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. God's not respecter of gender. He's not respecter of age. You could be an old woman or a young boy. You can be an old man or a young girl. Or anything in between. You're good. So this is the promise being fulfilled that Moses had articulated in Numbers 11. That it would happen that there would be all of these people who would receive the spirit. Well in Acts chapter 8 the, the word of God is spreading and more are being gathered into the kingdom. And in 8.14 it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. Where did we see the language of falling upon? Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord fell upon Ezekiel. And so the hand of the Lord falling upon someone carries this 
overt, manifest something. It's physical, it's bodily, and it's bringing something in their lives so that they speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, I'm not going to go in tonight to the difference between prophesying and speaking in tongues. It's interesting, it's theologically significant, but we don't have time, so we're not going to do it. But I want to just point out, they're using the language, Luke is using the language of fallen upon specifically to mirror the very language that Ezekiel had used and that is found in 1 Samuel. In other words, the power of God came down upon these in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then our last passage, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, this is the story of Cornelius. Now we're not even dealing with half-breed Jews. We're dealing with complete pagans. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. There's no claim to be in the, in the community of Jewish faith. And it says, 1044, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Same language as in chapter 8, same language as in the two Ezekiel passages we read. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter said, can anyone withhold water for baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so it begins, the expansion of this phenomenon of the power of God. Now, one of the things that we have to fight against all the time in the church is this tendency to get all in our head about experiences of God. I would say many of our evangelical brethren have struggled with this for years. They're sincere and they're going to heaven, but I don't think they're having these kinds of experiences with God most of the time. And one of the things that marked the vineyard, and, and if there's anything that marks the vineyard movement more than anything else, I would say globally, is this phenomenon of the power of God, the hand of God falling on people. And I say that because, well, never mind me, Jack Hayford prophesied to the vineyard movement in 1995. You may not know who he is, but he's one of the most famous pastors in America, and at one time, he was the head of the Foursquare denomination. But Jack Hayford said to the Vineyard Movement in 1995, Vineyard, never lose your heritage of the power of God. You could go down a path that chases after theology, but honestly, Vineyard, you're not that good. Uh, he meant it in love, but he was right. He said, you know, you aren't as good as these others with their great theology, but what is theology really in the end? It's all up here. It's in the head. What was the thing that drew people all over the world? Some of you wouldn't have remembered these years, but I'm telling you as one who was there. I don't care if it was New Zealand. I don't care if it was Australia. I don't care if it was England, Germany, France. I don't care if it was the United States of America, South Africa. I could keep naming countries, but you get the idea. The thing that drew people was they were astounded to see the manifest power of God. Now, we're speaking specifically about prophecy this weekend, and we're about done speaking about it. But what we really are contending for is that we would hold on to the overt release of the Spirit of God upon his people. 
that there would be a valid, ongoing expression of the prophetic voice among the people of God. And when that voice gets quiet, I get worried. And I get worried for a lot of reasons, and I'll just give you one simple one, but there are others. One reason I get worried is the Lord says that there will come a time when there will be a dearth, a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And if the prophetic spirit is not moving among us, pretty good bet that we're having a, a famine for the word of God. The spoken word of God now. I'm not talking about the written word. We still have that. And when Kirk opened this whole thing the other night and he read from the very first uh, chapters of 1 Samuel, it said, now the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were not many visions. And then the word of God comes to Samuel and he gives his word. So there is something about having the power, the hand of God fall upon you that will release in you visions, maybe tongues, interpretations of tongues, prophetic utterance, audible hearing, inner hearing, all these other things that we've been talking about. There's something of that that comes to you when the overt power of God comes down upon you. And I think that one of the things we want to capture in our day, again, is this business of the power. Where did we get it from anyway? Well, it really wasn't ours. As Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's really his. And it doesn't mean the vineyard's better than any other movement. It just means that out of his own choice, out of his own grace, his own sovereign will, God decided that of all the movements on earth, the vineyard would be one to carry the power of God as I've described. And he sent a man named Lonnie Frisbee who moved in incredible power in order that the vineyard would be a movement filled with that. Now, depending on where you go, there may be relatively more or less of that. But I'll tell you this. I mean in vineyard circles. But I'll tell you this. When you move outside of vineyard circles, there's a lot of things that go on, and not all of them are bad. But I've been around a bit, and I've seen quite a few movements, and most of them do not have this power phenomenon. They don't. And I think part of the mission of the vineyard is to bring that to others because we're supposed to share the bread we have. But, of course, we can't do it if we don't have it. And with that, by the way, we want a living, active, credible voice of God, voice of prophecy flowing in our midst, in our local congregations. And so why shouldn't it begin here? This church is now the flagship church of the vineyard in Australia. It may have been that before, but it's clearly that now because the national directors are based here. And as they say in the Navy, the admiral's ship is the one where the admiral's flag flies. And so with that, I'll stop. And I'll just say this. Don't get confused in your watching of YouTube and Facebook and other streaming media. Don't get confused with what you think you see versus the overt power of God. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that may look like it's the real thing, but it's not really the real thing. The real thing is overt power. And when that power is released, I am talking specifically about 
prophetic type ministry, but I'm, I'm going to just broaden it just a smidge now and say this. The true inner healing that people need that binds up the wounds in their souls or that deals with their afflicted minds, their memories, and so forth, that inner healing usually is accompanied by power. I call it power inner healing. The true healing that heals people's physical bodies, most of the time when it comes, there is an overt release of power. You will literally see the power of God come over people's bodies. Every time, no, but most all the time. Deliverance, same sort of thing. When evil spirits are coming out, it's because power is released. And in fact, we can go further. Jesus said, if I by the finger of God drive out evil spirits, then know with certainty that the kingdom of God has come among you. With this is an overt release of power. And when churches don't have power flowing, they usually don't have very much going on in terms of deliverance ministry either. And this is why this teaching of it was all done at the cross is taking root in a lot of these non-power churches because it's rooted in knowledge now. And so they say, well, you know, all of, your, all of your nature has changed when you were born again. You don't even need to go through deliverance. Mm-hmm. Tell me another story. I've got a bridge to sell you. You don't need inner healing. Mm-hmm. Tell me about all the people who have broken lives and histories from what went on in their upbringing or on the job. So this is a bigger issue than prophecy. We've been talking about prophecy, and I don't want to widen it into more than we can take on in the couple moments we have left here. But I do want to say this matter of power, is it's a bright line test. It's an unassailable issue, and it is one of the key distinctions of the vineyard movement. It may not always be articulated quite as firmly or clearly as I'm articulating it, but I'm doing this with one very specific reason, that you would understand how important of an issue this is. Does that make sense? Any questions before we have ministry time? Yeah. Yes. It's actually worse than Gnostic. Yeah, Madonna's Kabbalah is Jewish black magic. Yeah. And, and black magic is actually worse than Gnosticism. Yeah. So stay away from Kabbalah. If, you, if you've done it, you need deliverance from it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, she's a media personality and they're always looking for something to talk about. So, yeah, Neil. I'm saying, I'm saying when the power comes on people, it's like prophecy squirts out of them. Power is a catalyst and prophecy is the result. Yeah. And you might have seen this some. My daughter, Rebecca, whom many of you know, increasingly comes under this kind of prophetic anointing when she prophesies. Now, you do not have to be under that unction of power every time you prophesy. But some are. It just depends on who they are and how they're wired. But you will usually, if you're prophesying out of power, you'll feel something down here stirring out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Some translations say out of your belly. You may feel something up here in your chest like butterflies or your heart. 
And you go, yeah, my heart's pounding and uh, uh, I'm under the anointing. You may feel energy in your throat. It could be tingling. It could be surging feeling. It could be heat. It might be here in your throat. It might be on your lips. It might be on your tongue. You can have different ways that that comes. All of these are signs of power. And then there's this overwhelming power like we see with, with Saul the king, with David, with the prophets at Naoth. Okay, that's a whole nother level. And it happens. And I bring it on. I mean, I'd love it if the Lord would smack everybody in this room that way tonight. And the whole room got wrecked, even if it meant we got missed the start of state of origin. I can't make it happen, but I can preach about it. And I know when I talk about it, a lot of times it does happen. So that's why I'm talking about it. But you will usually know when you have something of this power thing coming on you. And again, it's different from something where people just form it in their mind. They just get the knowledge. If you only understood, then, you know, you could string these words together and come up with a prophecy. Awesome. I want prophecy that's under unction. And in a moment, I'm going to pray for everyone in the room and mosque, because if I go around and do that, it'll take us past our deadline. But I'm going to pray for the Spirit of God to fall in the room. And the one thing I really want you to do, because most of us are way too controlled and in our heads most of the time, is I want you to relax and let the Spirit of God take over. If you start shaking and vibrating, great. If your lips start to vibrate, great. You feel heat in your tongue, great. But mostly what I want to see is that out of that, something would be released, and it would be awesome if we get a string of prophetic words going. And what I most particularly want you to do is, if you feel something wanting to come up, just let it out. Just let it rip. And let's just see what God will do. I did a meeting in Western Australia in Perth about three or four years ago. We had about 400 people in the meeting, and when this phenomenon happened... We went for over an hour and a half, and we had over 150 prophetic words. You've never seen it like that, I'm sure. Most people haven't. But that's the kind of phenomenon they were having at Naoth. And see, most of the time people go, well, we've had three or four words. We have to shut it down. We don't want to be decent, indecent and out of order. That's not quite that. It's simply that Paul's thinking about the administration of the church service. It gets unwieldy when you have more than three or four words. It gets to be too long. But when you're doing a training event, you're trying to stir something up and provoke a release under the spirit of prophecy, well, then you can take those wraps off and just let it roll and see what happens with it. Does that make sense to everybody? Any more questions? Okay, the game starts in 25 minutes, <laughs> and we're trying to respect that and have some fun. And I think we have food, so probably we want to be eating by maybe 7.30. So if you would like to receive the spirit of prophecy, now this is specifically unto the release of the voice of God. All that other stuff, inner healing, deliverance, whatever, Save that for later. We can always talk about that another time, or Kirk can cover it in a you know message, whatever. This is about releasing the voice of God with the idea that it squirts out of you because of the power coming on you. If you'd like to experience that, I want you to make a decision in your mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let whatever happens happen. I'm going to just release it. Hey, 
Saul lay, fell on the floor and took off his clothes. You won't be doing that, I assure you. If you start, we'll stop you. But it's a bit cold, that's right. But, but the, thing, the thing to catch in that is he seemed to be out of control, didn't he? Hello? He seemed to be out of control. And so often we want to be in control. And that's part of what shuts this thing down before it really starts gaining momentum. So again, I can't make anything happen. All I can do is pray, but I know what God loves to do. I know what Moses' prayer was, and I know he got it from God himself. And I know what Peter said would happen, that this is for everybody, young and old, male and female. So it ought to be the case that we see something of this release of the prophetic grace in power. Okay? Let's do it. All right? Come on up. If you want it. I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this. I believe one of the missing catalysts to awakening is the prophetic word released. I'm in the middle of attempting to write a doctoral dissertation on this. And there's many places in scripture I could show it. But when I see prophecy dying away, I think we are not anywhere near the point, the tipping point for awakening. And so I want to see prophecy really stirred up, hyperkinetic, lots of power in prophecy in all of the churches of Australia so this land can have its place. All right, let's pray. Hold out your hands. If they're crossed, don't cross them. Sometimes that'll slow things down. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that, that Moses said it. Would to God that all of the Lord's people were prophets. Now, Father, we ask you to let the power of prophecy and the spirit of prophecy fall on the people of God in this room. Let it be. Let it be as it was with Saul, with David, with the soldiers, with the prophets at Naoth. Now as the Spirit of God comes over you, it's okay to who and ha, but give expression to the words that the Lord is raising within you. Let the prophets of the Lord speak. Shout them out.